0: Well, good morning. It is an unexpected privilege to be up here to bring you the word this morning. Uh, I have the great privilege to be here as I got a call from Pastor Rich uh, yesterday afternoon calling it in. Uh, He is not well. Uh, He is laid up even this morning as I was texting him saying that, Still had fevers and chills and headache and uh, just uh, not feeling well. So uh, I have the great privilege to be with you in his stead and to bring the word uh, to you this morning to be praying for him as he uh, gets back on his feet and uh, to get some rest. Uh, That said, I went to work quickly yesterday to think about what message I could bring to you this morning as we all begin a new year together. And I thought about talking about New Year's resolutions, but I'm not particularly fond of making big pushes for New Year's resolutions. Uh, If you have some, uh, that's great. I applaud you and would love to visit with you at the end of the year if you're able to keep them and uh, learn from you Uh, in that way. Maybe you just completed some. Uh, Give me a call. I'd love to talk to you and uh, learn from you uh, from that. Uh, But uh, that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, We're going to talk about the foundation for all of life and whatever we're doing. The reality is, in this life, our lives on their own are very delicate and unstable. The world around us is hostile and chaotic, and we need a foundation that brings stability and confidence as we strive to live our lives for the glory of God. Amen? We're going to look at a psalm that propels us into one of the fundamental and important facts of all of life. And that is the existence and supremacy of the one true and living God. Let's pray together as we begin our time together. Lord, we come as a people in need of your help. Uh, We need to understand your word this morning. Not only do we want to understand it, but we want to be empowered to live by it, by your spirit. We pray that you would help us understand it and apply it in the way that the Spirit intends. Lord, we pray that uh, you would help your servant here this morning, that it would be effective in understanding the text, but uh, also just to um, apply it in some ways that might be helpful uh, to those that are here this morning individually as a church body. We pray that you would be honored in it all, that you would receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each day that goes by, I'm coming to realize more and more how fragile and unpredictable life is. The instability of life can be found in the sudden and unforeseen twists that we often encounter. For example, the unpredictability of health. A person may be enjoying robust well-being one moment, only to face a health crisis in the next. Economic fluctuations and Unforeseen circumstances can disrupt the stability of one's financial status and situation. A thriving career may be jeopardized by unforeseen events such as economic recessions and job market changes and unexpected industry shifts. Political instability provides another one of life's inherent uncertainties. Nations and societies can undergo rapid and unexpected shifts and Governance and policies and political climates significantly impacting the lives of individuals, right? We've all felt this and experienced it over our lifetimes. The dynamics of relationships exemplify life's instability. Bonds between individuals can evolve or be strained or even broken unexpectedly due to various factors like changing in priorities and misunderstandings and unforeseen challenges of many kinds the changes and challenging nature of human connections underlines the intricate and sometimes even tumultuous nature of life's relational aspects so many things that can cause instability and chaos in our lives and this psalm is intended to remind God's people to trust in our sovereign living God while living in a world that is instable. This is a psalm of community trust. It was most likely sung antiphonally within corporate worship in Israel, where there would be a call from one portion of the community and a response from another portion of the assembly. And while the exact historical setting of the psalm isn't known with any certainty, verse 2 gives us some significant insight to understand the purpose of the psalm, where it says, the psalmist says, why should the nation say, where is their God? And this is a psalm that defends the glory of God against those who are skeptically scoffing at his people in the midst of their difficulties in life. And I think you'll quickly see the relevance for your life today as we get in to this psalm. So let's look at it together. I've entitled the message today, Glorifying God. In a hostile world, I should mention to you, your notes in the bulletin are not going to line up with my message. So you can scrap those, you can use them, but uh, whatever you want to do with those, just so you're not totally confused on what's going on. Uh, we just couldn't get those together uh, yesterday afternoon for, for today. But uh, hopefully you have some kind of paper that you can use for, for your own notes uh, or what, what have you. But uh, first point here, let's look at it together a declaration of God's glory in verse one. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I love this psalm. This is a psalm that uh, when I had the opportunity in Hebrew exegesis in seminary, uh, we got to pick out a passage that we wanted to really dig into for the semester. And this is the one that I picked because it just has uh, so much in it and it's a good reminder that we all need that life is not about us right the psalmist begins with a bold declaration that every believer should adopt as the motto for life the psalmist states that all that we are and all that we do is not to resolve around us but to God alone Right out of the gate, the psalmist proclaims that the one true and living God should receive all of the glory for all things. This is an exclusive statement. The psalmist repeats himself to make the point emphatically clear. He says, not to us, not to us. And the psalmist writes this explicit oath in the negative here with an expected contrast to follow. Well, if if not to us, then to whom? The name of Yahweh, the Lord. The object of which should receive the glory, according to the psalmist, is the name of Yahweh. This is a psalm that immediately directs our attention away from ourselves and towards God. This is a psalm that moves our attention from the horizontal that we're so accustomed to living in the day in and day out of life to the vertical. This is a psalm that we all need this morning. I know you understand the need for this psalm because, just like me, our natural bent is to focus upon ourselves, our life, our world, our circumstances. This is not a casual focus that we have upon ourselves. No, I'm not talking about wisely looking out for our interests and personal affairs of life. That's only responsible to do. I'm not simply talking about personal interests, hobbies, or pastimes. I'm referring to each of our propensities towards self-worship and the idolatry that we're all so prone to set up in our lives. We find all sorts of ways to disguise our fascination with ourselves, but we do it. We brag on our children's successes on our bumpers and our Christmas cards. We post stuff that no one should care about on our social media accounts as if someone should care. We're all prone to think about ourselves as number one, and we must be reminded that life is not fundamentally about us. This is why Jonathan Edwards, as a young 18-year-old pastor, took pen to paper over eight months to write his 70 resolutions that would act as a compass for his life but before he got into writing those 70 resolutions, he began and wrote his preface to those resolutions. And he said this, quote, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable, agreeable to his will for Christ's sake, End quote. Then he began his first resolution by writing this, resolved, that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. This is why the Westminster Catechism begins with, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You see, this psalm clearly reminds us that the glory of of uh, all things and of our lives does not belong to us or to any man For to give glory to man is idolatry that God will not allow. And to give glory to anything other than to God is idolatry. And where there is a lack of glory being given to God, there will be idolatry in close proximity, even as we will see in our psalm this morning. This had been the constant sin of Israel, which had time and time again taken pride in their own accomplishments and victories over their nations and would ignore what God had done in their lives and they would become complacent in their worship of God and the whole history of Israel is really a cycle of obedience and blessing turn to self-reliance turn to disobedience turn to following after false gods and then correction and curses follow and begins the cycle of where God will draw his people back and show them his love and his care even as we will see in this passage this morning as well. So this is a psalm that we would be that would be used to exhort and encourage the nation of Israel in their corporate worship and the community of Israel to bring glory to God alone as he demands of his people. And the Lord will not have his glory given to any other. The Lord is a jealous God that has every right to demand glory for himself and that is why Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 48:10 through 11 behold i have refined you but not as silver i have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake for my own sake i do it for how should my name be profaned my glory i will not give to another unless we become prideful and begin throwing stones at Israel and sneer at them for their obvious and foolish rebellion too quickly, let us remember how quickly we do the exact same thing. You see, it is too often a familiar situation to us to put ourselves at the center of our universe. And this psalm stops us dead in our tracks and reminds us where our attention and our worship should be aimed. Towards the glory of God alone. The psalmist understood that a person can only have one allegiance. We can only have one passion ruling us. We can only have one God sitting upon the throne of our heart. We can only ultimately worship one God. All other things are at competition with God in our hearts. And that is idolatry. Paul Tripp is helpful in his description of idolatry when he writes, An idol of the heart is anything that rules me other than God. As worshiping beings, human beings always worship someone or something. This is not a situation where some people worship and some don't. If God isn't ruling my heart, someone or something else will. It is the way that we were made. End quote. You see, this psalm reminds us to have a renewed commitment to the glory of God in our lives and all that we do. Regardless of our circumstances, this is our aim. This psalm is intended to remind you that God is to be the sole object of our worship. And the psalmist goes on to give us two reasons that we should give God alone the glory the psalmist writes a psalm as a response to Yahweh for the manifestation of his character to them. His attributes that had been demonstrated to Israel time and time again. And specifically here in this psalm is his loyal love and his faithfulness. And despite the unfaithfulness of his people, God has perfect loyal love and faithfulness that he extends to his own people. His steadfast love speaks of his mercy, his grace, his kindness and compassion towards his children. And his faithfulness speaks to his integrity to act according to that attribute, to that character. And the very foundation of this passage in the attributes of God are not just any attributes, but these these specific to his loyal love and his faithfulness to his people, Is the very character of God that the psalmist is calling his audience to remember, and it's the same characteristics of God that we should be reminded of even today. God has spoken, and he will be faithful to fulfill his word because his loyal love and faithfulness towards his people. Just as Israel could count on it, just as the New Testament saints could count on it, you and I in the church age can count on it allow me just to remind you of God's loyal love and faithfulness, faithfulness as a new covenant people this morning. Paul writes in Romans 5, 8-11, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see it there. While we were sinners, we were the recipients of God's love. May we never take pride in ourselves and what God has done for us. And while we are yet sinners here, God reached down to us by sending His Son to die for us. While we are yet enemies, God reconciled us to Himself through His Son. And while we are without hope, God gave us hope through His Son. You see, regardless of our circumstances, we are truly much better than we deserve. We have seen every reason to declare God's glory in the world we live within. And that is just one verse of this psalm. Let's continue to look at the psalm just to see how foundational this psalm is to bring in stability in the midst of a hostile world. Secondly, here this morning, we'll look at a defense of God's sovereignty in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 really is the key to properly understanding the intent of this psalm. While we do not know the precise historical setting of the psalm, it is clear that Israel was under antagonistic scoffing from the other nations around them. The psalmist in verse 2 employs the use of a sarcastic question. Why should the nation say, where is their God? And we begin to see the psalmist develop a passionate argument against the idolatry of other nations. The obvious answer to this question is, They shouldn't. And it was a question that God's people shouldn't give them a reason to ask. The surrounding pagan nations taunted Israel when it was hit hard by calamity and every sort of difficulty. When they were hit by natural disasters or crushed by foreign enemies and personal affliction, they would be mocked by the other nations. And this is... An assault of the very existence and character of God from the other nations, saying, "Where now is there a God?" And it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Not much has changed. When everything from global catastrophes to deep personal conflicts take place, the first question that people often ask is, "Where is God now?" How can a good God be allowing this to happen? And while we do not have the answers to why all bad things happen, the psalmist gives us a hard truth that is to be a comfort to his people. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. God has shown himself to demonstrate his loyal love and faithfulness to his people time and time again, and it's with this confidence that the psalmist declares, our God is in the heavens He does all that he pleases. And while the absolute meticulous sovereignty of God is not an easy truth to understand, it is a truth that a great comfort to those who trust in the Lord. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this about God's sovereignty. Quote, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe troubles, they believe that the sovereignty of God hath ordained their afflictions. The sovereignty overrules them, and the sovereignty will sanctify them all. There's nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. Spurgeon continues, On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, but most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of infinite God. Men will allow God to be everywhere except for on his throne. End quote. Indeed, Spurgeon says, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. So the psalmist answers the sarcastic question by saying, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. In great contrast to the idols of nations, our God is enthroned in heaven and there is no diminishment of his sovereignty even in the midst of the worst trials that you can imagine. God does whatever pleases him. God's sovereignty and his sovereign will is unequaled. It is unrivaled and it will not be thwarted by anyone or anything. And while we do not have the time to develop a full theology of God's sovereignty this morning, the scriptures are so rich in teaching us that God's sovereignty is meticulous and exhaustive in its extent. Please don't even try to write all these down, but I just want to give you a survey of what the scriptures begin to teach us on the extent of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over the entire universe, Psalm one hundred three nineteen. God is sovereign over celestial beings, Psalm 103, verse 20 and 21. God is sovereign over all of nature, Psalm 135, 6 through 7. God is sovereign over the nation, Psalm 47, 7 through 9. God is sovereign over rulers, Proverbs 21, 1. God is sovereign over all human beings, 1 Samuel 2, 6 through 7. God is sovereign over even animals, Psalm 104, 21. God is sovereign over chance, Proverbs 16, 33. God is sovereign over free acts of men, Exodus 3, 21. God is sovereign over sinful acts of men, Genesis 45 and verse 5 and Genesis 50, 20. God is sovereign over suffering, 1 Peter four nineteen 19 and the whole book of Job. God is sovereign over our salvation, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You see, either God is sovereign over all, or he is not sovereign at all. Everything that goes on in this world is not about us. It's about him and his grand purposes. He is working everything towards his will. Divine sovereignty means that God is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Everything revolves around and is directed towards the glory of God. And whether it is in defeat or success, the favorable or unfavorable of life, it is all God's doing in order to bring about his will. According to the psalmist, no one has the right to call into question God's actions. And this is the confidence that we must have when the world asks, where now is your God. We were told that we will have skeptics and that we should be able to give an answer to them for the hope that's within us, First Peter 3:15. And the Apostle Peter writes in second Peter three3 through four telling believers to expect this kind of attitude in their lives and from other people, knowing this first of all that scoffers will come in the last days. With their scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where's your God? We should have a reason and a, an ability to tell them the hope that was within us and this confidence that we serve a sovereign God that does whatever he pleases When calamity comes and when we're hit with trials, we should live in such a way that it exudes confidence in the sovereignty of God. This does not mean that you do not struggle with understanding and dealing with the pain and difficulties of trials and suffering, but that you do so with a resolved trust and confidence that God is in control. Those who worship and serve idols need to see the difference that serving a living and mighty God makes in our lives because they have no hope in the world. We have people watching us. that have no hope because they're worshiping weak, lifeless gods. And this is exactly where the psalmist next takes us. If we look at verses four through eight, a defiance of God's foes. Look at the sad state of those who worship these idols. Verse four Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. In complete contrast to our sovereign God that is self-existent and eternal, who lives and dwells in heaven doing whatever he pleases, we are now given a view of the completely lifeless, incompetent gods of the nations that can do nothing. The irony is thick here. While they're made of valuable silver and gold, they're completely worthless. They're made by human hands. They're the product of man's Fallen imagination. They have no power to act. Look there again at verse 5. These idols are dumb with mouths that cannot speak. They're blind with eyes that cannot see. They're deaf with ears that cannot hear. They have no sense of smell or touch. They're lame with feet that cannot walk. These gods are useless. And these idols are dead and lifeless. As a matter of fact, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, all gods other than the one true living God are nothing but figments of man's vain imagination. 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6 in the context of eating things sacrificed to idols and Paul is addressing that issue trying to help them understand, you know, these, these, this meat that's been offered to these other idols, it, it really is just meat because these things are nothing. Are all things and through whom we exist. As a result of the fall, man has been really creative to do everything he can to develop systems of religion with their own gods in order to get them off of the hook with accountability with the one true God. That's why Paul writes in Romans 1 18 through 23 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. I'm sorry, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, we suppress the truth about the one true creator God and exchange him For the idols of our own making. This was true for Israel throughout the Old Testament. This was true for those in the New Testament, and this is true in our culture today. Everything from those who worship Buddha and Allah to those that set up idols out of their homes that they live in, the cars that they drive, we are all prone to set up idols of all kinds in our lives. And the psalmist then provides us with a sobering reality. That those who trust in these gods, they will become like them. You become like what you worship. Those that choose to worship idols will be powerless, lifeless, and useless. So we're given a sobering look at the worthlessness of worshiping idols. But then we're given encouragement to depend upon God's grace in verses 19, I'm sorry, verses 9 through 15. And here we see a dependency on God's grace. A dependency on God's grace. The psalmist gives us two results of putting our trust in the Lord versus these vain idols. First, we see the psalmist telling us that those who trust in the Lord are provided with protective care. Look at verses uh, 9 through 11 there. Oh, Israel. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The psalmist calls God's people to trust Him. Trust the Lord. The plea is repeated three times to highlight the importance of trusting the Lord. Look at it there. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And what will be the result? He will be your help and your shield. Our trust should not be placed in weak idols or in any other earthly possession, but in the God who provides for His people. This idea here in this term to trust means to attach oneself to or to be confident in, to be reliant upon. It's the idea associated with firmness or sturdiness. And believers are called to rely upon the Lord and rest in him who do, does whatever he pleases within his heavenly throne. We are not to rest in our financial portfolios as we're so prone to do. Our job security, our homes we sleep in, our guns in our safe or the cars in our driveways. We are to agree with David in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. We're to trust in the Lord to be our help and our shield because God is the one who ultimately provides his protective care over those who put their trust in him. But not only does he provide this protective care, he provides blessings. If you look at verses 12 through 14, The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. This phrase, he will bless, is repeated here again to make sure you cannot miss his point. The Lord remembers his people. He is mindful of His people, of their needs, and He will not forget them. The person that faithfully puts his trust in God is promised not only protection, but blessing. And there's no missing this point. Four times the psalmist tells us, He will bless us. He will surely multiply His favor towards all those who faithfully trust And bestow his blessings on the small and great alike who place their trust in him. The psalmist provides a prayer for God's blessing on all those who trust in him. He says in verse 14, May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. You see, he pleads with God to make you increase. And this request is based upon the fact that the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth and he is able He's able to bless you with all that he wants. This is the sovereign God that if you do not have, it's because the Lord doesn't want you to have. If you do have, it's because he wants you to have it. He is the protector. He is the provider. So we are called to depend upon the living God who can bless you beyond all measure and not be dependent upon our own ingenuity. Efficiency or productivity and strength, like we're all prone to depend upon, right? We all are. It is only God who has created all, who can bless all, and this rightly leads his children to praise him. And that's our last point here this morning, a doxology of God's superiority in verses 16 through 18. The psalmist says, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, But the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The psalmist concludes with a doxology of God's superiority over all things. The God who reigns over all creation as the exalted sovereign Lord should receive praise on this earth. We're to enjoy the gifts that he has given to bring glory back to him. The psalm opens with a doxological statement, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And it concludes now with the highest praise of the sovereign God. The dead no longer have opportunity to praise the Lord on this earth. So the psalmist calls us as long as we live in this world to praise the Lord. We're all called to magnify the name of the Lord both now and forever. And may this be our response as we look into the year ahead. May we praise the Lord as long as we have opportunity for all that he is and for all that he does in our lives. It is all to him, all to his glory that we live and have our being. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this psalm that reminds us of your steadfast, loyal love. You care, you bless, you provide for your people that trust in you. Lord, we pray that we would take something away from this text this morning, wherever we may be, whether we're in the blessings or the challenges and difficulties of life, that we would seek to bring honor and glory to you, that we would be ready to always bring you glory wherever we are at, that even as the watching world looks upon us and even scoffs, ask where is our God that we might have A sturdy conviction that all that you do is for your own glory and for our good. That we would glorify you in all opportunities that we have here on this earth as long as we shall live. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could stand with me for our benediction from Revelation chapter 4 verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Go in grace.